0: Let's open up to Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That is so marvelous to me. And as we talked about Sunday, that we are in the favorable year of the Lord. God can't give any more grace than He's already given. He's he's given all that is ever needed. Enough grace that it would save the entire world throughout all history if everyone would come to faith in Jesus. So grace isn't the problem. The problem is accepting that grace. It's accepting that this is the favorable year of the Lord. And you know what? It's not just with unbelievers that that problem lies. It is with believers as well. And I have been chewing on this all week long. How often do we get caught up in the things of life and forget that this is the favorable year? That this is the time of His grace? This is the time when the Holy Spirit has been poured out where His grace is immediately available for anyone who would receive it. And so our response as followers of Jesus, and I'm speaking obviously primarily to Christians tonight, our response as believers in Jesus is to recognize this is the favorable year. And to bring that good news to a lost world. And I really think the reason why many Christians don't bring that good news is we forget that this is not the time of drudgery. This is not the time of disgust. It's not the time of, of sorrow and depression and holding up in our homes and just waiting for Jesus to come and take us out of this dark place. This is the time of the favorable year of the Lord. And so He's done everything necessary. And I just wonder if we would believe that the coupling of our faith and His grace might break into hard hearts. Jesus says, if you say to this mountain, you know, be tossed in the sea, if you have a mustard seed of faith, you can do that. How much more to see a life saved? Now, I'm not saying that we we can somehow take over somebody's free will. But we certainly can be those who are praying for the softening of hearts. Praying for the opening of hearts to the Lord. As Les has said many times, He is a product of intercession. And one of the greatest calls on believers today is to simply be interceding constantly for those who are not saved. For those who don't realize this is the age of God's favor. And His favor is handed out to them, reached out to them. It's it's, it's free. There are no strings attached. God says, come and drink. Come and feast. This is the favorable year of the Lord. But... The rest of the passage picks up, and the day of the vengeance of our God. One sentence, by the way, note, in all of the things that Messiah is going to do, in all of the things that are the mission of Messiah, which includes bringing good news to the afflicted, binding up the brokenhearted, proclaiming liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, proclaiming the favorable year of the Lord, going on beyond that to comfort all those who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, Uh, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. One sentence about the day of vengeance. Because the day of vengeance is not the focus. It's not the point. It is a must happen. There must be justice. Justice will be served. But that's not God's heart. God's heart is forgiveness and grace and mercy. And so the whole rest of this song... These first three verses speak of the heart of the Father, the heart of Messiah, which is a heart of grace. What's marvelous in these three verses is that in just three verses, the Spirit of Christ, through Isaiah the prophet, poignantly connects the first and the second comings of Messiah just three verses and the whole thing is covered right there the entire gamut of the mission of Jesus and seven centuries later Jesus reads that first verse and a half of the servant song and he declared and i remind you luke 4:21 today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing in other words Jesus said in that synagogue in nazareth messiah's coming is fulfilled here and now in me messiah has come And so the first half of this servant song of Isaiah 61 has kicked into gear. And people can begin now receiving grace and mercy and forgiveness through me. Messiah's here. In his own appearing, Jesus ushered in the favorable year of the Lord. That same year that we live in. I think it's probably late December of that year. But we are still in the favorable year of the Lord. We've been there ever since. We could call this grace at the comma. You know, if there was a comma in the Hebrew, if they used punctuation like that, there'd be a little comma right there to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Pause, and that's where we are. Peace in the pause. (laughs) And in spite of the fact that there are afflictions and broken hearts and captivity and disfavor in the world today, all caused by sin, the instant anybody turns to faith in Jesus, the second someone says, I'm going to choose to believe, favor Immediate favor. These are the days of grace. And I keep repeating that because I am blown away by that truth. We need to be blown away by it. We need to be caught breathless by the truth of the age of grace in which we live. Jesus said in Luke 10.24, "...many prophets and kings wish to see the things which you see and did not see, and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear." Think about all the people in history past who did not see the coming of Jesus, who did not experience the favorable year of the Lord, and yet you and I were here, right now, in this most blessed time in the history of the world. Therefore, as Paul writes, Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Well, how did you receive Him? By grace. Therefore, let your life be a life of grace. Walk in that grace, having been firmly rooted, Paul writes, and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. These are things that, by the way, attract people to Jesus. Someone who is established in their faith. Someone who is walking in the grace by which they were saved. Someone who comes to the Lord overflowing with gratitude. These things are attractive and would allure someone in the direction of Jesus. This is the year of His favor. But it is quickly coming to an end. And just as Jesus owned the first half of this prophecy, He said, this is fulfilled in me, so we can be absolutely sure, Jesus is going to bring the second half of this prophecy just as literally. He's going to do exactly what it says. I'm going to ask you to come back Sunday to hear about that. And we'll spend some more time on that in part 2 of the Servant Song on Sunday. But I want you to note this. With this prophecy, even with the speaking of these words, we have effectively been launched into the future age. Beginning halfway through verse 2, And the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He, always note that, that He may be glorified. Everything we talk about in the next two chapters relates to the coming age. Everything from this point forward tonight is future. It's what will come when Jesus brings it. It's the culmination of all things. As we bear down on this millennial kingdom, the kingdom promised to who? Who was it promised to? Israel. Israel. This kingdom promised to Israel is coming, and all that is in these next two chapters, chapter 61 and 62, is about that kingdom. Grace literally births the destiny of Israel and the kingdom of Christ the Messiah. Let's look at it, beginning in verse 4. Then they will build the, rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations. And they will repair the ruined cities. The desolations of many generations. Strangers will stand and pasture your flocks. And foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers. But you will be called the priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Now we need to be crystal clear both about whom and to whom Isaiah is speaking here. And according to the prophets Daniel, Zechariah, and John, among others, there are established roles in the coming kingdom of Christ. Very specific roles that the Bible talks about. Roles for you and me. Roles for God's people, Israel. Roles for others as well. But we need to be absolutely clear here about whom Isaiah is not referring. And in chapter 61 and 62, he is not referring to the church. Now, some say he is, and they're wrong. And, I, you know, I know that sounds uh, a little dogmatic. But if you read Scripture literally as written, they're wrong. This is to and about Israel. It's not about the church. Some will look at verse 6 and say, it says you'll be called the priests of the Lord and ministers of our God. And Revelation talks about that. I know, hold on, we'll get there. This is to and for Israel. Okay, we'll get there. Revelation 5.10 does tell us (laughs) that the church, the redeemed of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, the church, will be kings and priests and will reign upon the earth. Revelation 5.10. Revelation twenty verse six says, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. Revelation twenty verse five refers to that as well. Even those saints of the tribulation. People who miss out on the harpazo, the catching up, the rapture of the church. But come to faith in Christ wonderfully during that time of tribulation. Revelation 20 verse 5 says they're part of the deal too. They will be raised up and serve and rule and reign with Jesus in the coming kingdom. We will all be there. We will be present to be sure. But here's the good news. We're going to be involved in the kingdom work in our resurrected glorified eternal bodies. Oh, that sounds good. It really does. To not be in human flesh, but to be here, part of the kingdom, and yet already eternal. I know that sounds kind of fantastic. Sometimes people say, Rick, that that almost sounds made up. Well, First of all, I couldn't make that up. And secondly, though it is fantastic, it is what God's Word tells us. It's just what the Bible says. And so fantastic or not, hey, the parting of the Red Sea is fantastic, but I believe it. God told us. History tells us that it took place. The ark, what a fantastic idea. Yeah, the flooding the world. Yeah, well, even even geology shows us. There must have been some kind of massive worldwide flood at some point. There are many fantastic things in Scripture, but our God is a supernatural God. In other words, fantastic. So don't be surprised when you hear things that are like, whoa, that just seems overwhelming. If you're unsure about them, read them. Study the book of Revelation. See what it says. Follow it through. But Isaiah is not talking about the church here. Though the church, yes, will come back with Jesus in our eternal state to rule and reign with Him as the Bible clearly states in multiple places. It's not the church who will be called priests of the Lord and spoken of as ministers of our God as spoken about here in verse 6. Priests of the Lord, ministers of our God speaks of Israel. And the nations, there in verse 6, refers to the nations, yeah, Gentiles. The nations. It's it is who, it, it's all survivors of that tribulation period, Jew and Gentile alike, who by faith enter into the millennial kingdom in their natural, physical state. The Jewish people who enter into that kingdom, having survived the tribulation, protected by the Lord in the tribulation, will be priests of the Lord and ministers of our God. And the nations will be the nations. Those who came to faith in Jesus somehow survived and enter into the millennial kingdom here on earth. And at that time, the prophecy says, redeemed Israel, again, will be priests of the Lord and ministers of our God. And I love how the Lord brings things full circle. Back in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, God said through Moses to the people, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And this trips up a lot of people. Because they hear this promise. You will be my own possession if you keep my covenant. And people say, well, Israel did not keep the covenant, did they? There are people who look at the fact that Israel broke the covenants with the Lord and say because they broke the covenants, God has cast them out. Listen, there's only one of seven covenants God made with Israel that they violated. There's only one that was conditional. All the rest are unconditional. This is the only conditional one. But what's marvelous here is even though this was a conditional covenant that they violated, God still is going to bring them back around again to be a kingdom of priests in the world. To be ministers of our God in the world. He's going to do with them what He intended to do even though they didn't do what they were supposed to do. Which is awfully good news for us. Because He is going to do in your life what He intended to do even if you don't do what you're supposed to do. I'm so thankful for that. Because there are many times I don't do what I know I'm supposed to do. And yet His grace is amazing. But some complain against this. They say Israel lost the opportunity. Okay, Rick, you're talking about replacement theology again, aren't you? Yes, I am. And I have to. It's not my fault. If there wasn't replacement theology, we wouldn't have to talk about it. Right? Years ago, when I first heard about replacement theology, which is the idea that, you know, the the big generality is that the church replaces Israel. When I heard this, I viewed it from a largely historical perspective, a benign perspective. I thought, okay, that's a good theology to understand and to know, okay, that's incorrect, it's not biblical, let's know that and move on. It began back in the 4th century. It gave rise to Christian anti-Semitism. In fact, Jewish persecution and, and an entire blight on the relationship of Israel and the church is the result of replacement theology pointing out the failure of Israel, replacement theology teaches that the righteous church now occupies the blessings once intended for Israel. And we all understand that. We've talked about that. But what about the mercy of God? That even in our failure, there is fulfillment. Do we not believe that He keeps His promises? Do we not believe that even when we fail to keep ours, God still does what He intended to do? And so this whole idea that Israel blew it and therefore they're out Does not square with scripture Numbers 23.19 says God is not a man that he should lie Nor a son of man that he should repent Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? And so the promised future of Israel That is absolutely crystal clear in Isaiah 61 and 62 This future is for Israel And God is going to do for Israel what He declares in this prophecy, just as we saw Jesus come in the first coming, and do the first verse and a half, so all that's talked about in these two chapters, God will do. Now some might ask, alright, but if Israel is going to be priests of the Lord and ministers of our God, who's over who in the kingdom? Because I thought we were supposed to be kings and priests and rule and reign with Jesus. So, so who's over who? And Jesus answered that one directly for us. Matthew 18 verse 1. At that time the disciples came to Jesus and they asked the question, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set them before him and, or set him before them and he said, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, in other words, change your minds, guys. Convert your thinking. And become like children. Unless you do that, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now think about this. What's more important to a child? Door monitor or ball monitor? (laughs) Who has the higher rank? Paper passers or eraser clappers? Look at an elementary school classroom and honestly, the kids don't care. As long as you got the little badge that has monitor something on it, that's cool. You're the trash monitor. Right on! Because rank doesn't really seem to matter so much with the kids. In the kingdom, here's the ranking system. Romans 9.5. This is it. The ranking system in the kingdom of God. Ready? Christ is over all God blessed forever. That's it. There's the ranking system. Jesus is Lord, and the rest of us serve Him. One rank. (laughs) Many roles. One absolute ruler who is Jesus. The rest of us are servants to Him and for Him. And by the way, as servants of Jesus Christ, you will be happier than at any time in your present existence or or in your past existence. To serve Jesus in the kingdom will be the most joyful thing you have ever experienced, and we will experience it on into eternity. By the way, did you notice the inclusiveness of the language there in verse 6? It says you will be priests of the Lord, priests of Yahweh, the Hebrew word for God, the Hebrew name for God, very personal Hebrew name. And you will also be spoken of as ministers of our God. Ministers of our God, the Hebrew is Anachnu Elohim. Anachnu Elohim, which means the God of all of us. And I love that. Ministers of the God of all of us, our God. All of our God. In other words, in the millennial kingdom, we will share a common faith across the world. One God, one faith for all people. That's the kingdom that we're coming to. Verse 7. Instead of your shame, you will have a double portion. Instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. The firstborn son, in Hebrew thinking, always received the double portion. That's why Israel gets the double portion, because they're the firstborn. They called Abraham and sent him to the promised land. And from Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Genesis 12, Genesis 15. And so Abraham, representing Israel, the firstborn, receives a double portion. And the distinction and honor of being the firstborn, the, the chosen of God. Now, Israel, as the firstborn of God's people or from among God's people, receives double. But what is the double portion? What's the double portion of verse 7? He tells us it's the land and it's joy. The double portion. In the land, a vast inheritance of land greater than any of the previous borders of Israel will be theirs. The land and the joy an everlasting joy unending and inexpressible think about Israel today and what they've done both the state of Israel in terms of the condition and the state of Israel in terms of a country right now they have some land small share of the land in the late 1800s Jews began to legally buy back acreage in the promised land to try and reestablish a Jewish state they bought malaria and mosquito-infested swamps and bogs. But in so doing, they managed, by God's grace, to carve out a tiny portion of land for sheer survival. And that's what they have. A tiny portion of land for survival. Somehow they have miraculously held on to it for 64 years, this tiny postage stamp of a nation. In the kingdom, they will not only reside in a massive, beautiful land, but they will do so with everlasting joy. The double portion. Yes, they have land today, but is it joyful? If every day you wake up having to guard against terror, does that sound like a joyful way to live? But in the kingdom, 300,000 square miles, the Bible tells us, of land will belong to the people of Israel. And in that land, the double portion, joy as well. Great land with great joy. And you know, we have a taste of that in Christ right now. Because though the kingdom is yet to come, we are citizens of a great kingdom. And we are a people of a great joy. Peter said in 1 Peter 1.8, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory, obtaining is the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. We get to walk in the joy that for Israel will become part of the double portion in the kingdom. How is that possible? Because we know Jesus. Because we know Israel's Messiah. Because He's our Messiah, as well as theirs. Verse 8 going on. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery in the burnt offering. Now, pause just for a second there. I've really struggled with this for a while until I realized I think it's not a very good translation. The NASB follows the King James in translating the word burnt offering there. But the context, it doesn't fit. And when you look it up and understand in the Hebrew, and Buksbazen points this out as a Jew himself and a Hebrew scholar. He points out that there is a better translation, and it's actually there in your, if you are studying the New American Standard Bible, it's in the margin. Rather than in the burnt offering, the margin says, or it could be with iniquity. Better translation that I hate robbery with iniquity. Why would you go that route instead of the burnt offering? Well, understand this. The Hebrew word is either ovlah or avla. Ovlah or avlah. Well, how come we don't know which one it is? Because the Hebrew letters are all consonants. There are no vowels. So vowels are, you know, the little jots, the little marks that direct which way it's supposed to go and the translators were not sure on this one is it Ovla or is it Avlah? is it the burnt offering or is it avlah injustice iniquity because the consonants are the same when you look at the Hebrew word So we look at the context of the Word. And the context is clear. Coming out of verse 6, God restores to Israel, verse 7, a double portion of land and joy. Why? Because He hates what's been done to them. What has been done to them? Robbery with iniquity has been done to Israel. And God is now making it right. He hates robbery. The word robbery in Hebrew, very easy to translate, gazelle. And gazelle means spoil or plunder. I hate plunder with iniquity. Plunder with injustice. And who more than the Jewish people have been plundered with injustice down through the ages? So I think the better translation there is probably that I hate robbery with in, with injustice or with iniquity. verse 8 going on he says and I will faithfully give them their recompense and make an everlasting covenant with them and then their offspring will be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples all who see them will recognize them because they are the offspring whom the Lord has blessed and this indicates not only that the offspring of Israel Jewish people offspring of Jews of the past will be ushered into the kingdom It also means that within that kingdom there will be generation after generation after generation of Israelites born. That there will be human birth. And Isaiah is going to talk about this more before we get to the end of the book. That there is life and death and birth and all that taking place in the millennial kingdom. And he even will say, and a life that is lived to a hundred, a hundred year old person will be thought a whippersnapper. Not his words, mine, but it will be thought young in the time of the kingdom. Because people will live a long time, but there will be children born during that time. There will be progeny. There will be generation after generation. And they will be blessed. And suddenly we get to verse 10. And Isaiah just breaks into this little hymn of praise. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. For He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland. And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And this verse beautifully ties back in to the earlier prophecy of the second coming back in verse 3. So I'm going to have to go back to it on Sunday. So we're just going to move right on past. Okay. Oh, I got to tell you one thing. Okay. Just because you chose to be here tonight, you get a little extra nugget here. Verse 10 is talking about wedding attire. It's talking about wedding clothes. Okay. And how the bride and the groom are dressed. But you need to understand, culturally speaking, back pre-A.D. 70, in more ancient Israel, the garland, literally here, the, the word can be translated turban, and it means a wedding turban. The garland is a wedding turban, and the wedding turban of the bridegroom, here in verse 10, was worn by the bride. And so we read this, a bridegroom as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland. Well, the word, words in the Hebrew that's not necessarily himself. It's as a bridegroom himself decks with a garland. Now read that way, perhaps he's not putting the turban on at all. But following Jewish custom, and this was Jewish custom, the bride would wear this special, beautiful turban. And if you see it that way, the bridegroom decks with a garland... As the bride adorns herself with all of her jewels, what we're seeing here is the bride is being dressed up for the wedding and the bridegroom is contributing to that beauty, is giving to the beauty of the bride. This ancient custom ceased among Jewish people after A.D. 70. Why? Because it was a sign of mourning. We'll no longer celebrate with that turban, with that you know gift of the bridegroom because of the mourning of the loss of Jerusalem and and all that happened. But the point is, the bridegroom wraps the bride with robes of righteousness. He places a royal turban, or some say diadem even, on her head. He adorns her with jewels. And we already have this picture with Christ in the church. Revelation 19, 7, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Listen, it was given to her. To clothe herself with fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. What's your point, Rick? Simply this. All people who come to Christ, including Israel, have got to learn and understand this truth. Righteousness is never gotten. It is only given. I don't make myself righteous. I am made righteous by Jesus. Now I can walk in that righteousness. I can choose righteousness. I can do good things by the grace of God. I can want to be good and holy and right. But righteousness, the cloth, the robe of righteousness, this is something Jesus does for me. He wraps me. He places the turban on my head. He adorns me with the jewels. He's the bridegroom. And I, I know guys it's tough, but I am the bride. And so we see this beautiful picture of the church, but he's not talking to the church. Remember that. still not talking to the church. He's talking to Israel. But note for all people, righteousness is something God gives, not something you achieve. Romans 10, verse 3. Paul says, "...for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they, that is Israel, did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes." What are you saying, Paul? I'm saying Jesus is righteousness. And Jesus, the very righteousness of God, came to earth and Israel said, no thanks, we're on our own. And did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God, to Jesus Christ. And therefore remain in a state of unrighteousness. Because you can't achieve your righteousness. Only Jesus can bring it. Verse 11, For as the earth springs forth and sprouts or springs forth its sprouts, then as a garden causes the things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. See? God causes righteousness to spring up. It's His work. He does it. And so in the coming kingdom, up pops righteousness, and with it, praise to the name of God to His glory. I wonder, in verse 11, as as Isaiah is writing here, he refers to this garden. I wonder if he recalled his earlier prophecy. Back in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1-7, through the prophecy of the vineyard. And it's a prophecy where God says through Isaiah, he describes this beautiful, wonderful, well-planted, well-constructed vineyard that ends up ruined and trashed and briared and thorny and wasted. And that's a picture of Israel. And so is this. What was a trashed vineyard now becomes a beautiful garden. The soil through which pops up this praise and this righteousness in the sight of all the nations. The whole world would just be looking at Israel saying, wow, what a miracle. What a righteous work of God. And so verse 1 of chapter 62 reads, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. Who's the speaker here? Who's talking in verse 1 of chapter 62? Some have said, well, it's Isaiah talking. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. I'm going to raise my voice. For the people, my people, Israel. Buchsvazna says the message itself, and especially verse 6, wait a minute, did I just, no, I'm right there. Especially verse 6 of chapter 62 makes it clear that the Lord Himself is speaking. He solemnly is assuring Zion that He will not keep silent until her righteousness shines forth like the dawn. God is speaking now in chapter 62. God is the one who says, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silence. And I'm so glad to hear the Lord speaking these words. But perhaps perhaps a more immediate question for us tonight is can you join the Lord in speaking this verse? Can you accept this verse as your calling, a calling on your heart? For me, this ranks up there with some of the most important things that the church can stand for. Some of the most important things that Christians can do. I'd say right up there, number one, is what we've talked about already tonight, and that is praying for the lost, interceding for lost people, and taking the gospel to a lost and dying world. But right up there, very close behind, is for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. I will stand for Israel in this world I will pray for the peace of Jerusalem I will be among those who plead the cause of Israel what you mean the nation of Israel yes and the Jewish people too yes the people of Israel God's chosen people the land of Israel God promised to Israel I will not keep silent for the sake of Zion Zion itself is there in Jerusalem it refers to the land it refers to the broader people And I will be among those who stand up and say, Israel has a right to the land. God gave it to her. Israel has a special place in the plan of God. He ordained that. And I will not discount that. David was so impassioned by Israel that even as he confessed and repented over his passion for Bathsheba, in Psalm 51, this verse, in, in the midst of this repentance, this verse comes out. Psalm 51.18, By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Now when, when was the last time you were repenting something and that repentance caused you to break out and begin to pray for Jerusalem? It shows us how much David felt for his people and for his land. Can you join David and pray that? Lord, build up the walls. Lord, may Your favor be seen in Zion. Can you join David in Psalm 122 and say, For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, May peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek Your good. Do you consider the Jewish people brothers and friends? I do. And I will plead their cause. Oh, because you're one of those Christian Zionists, Rick? I hate labels, but yes, I am. (laughs) Absolutely. Based on the definition of a Christian Zionist, that means that I believe we have a biblical mandate to love the Jewish people. It means I believe that for Zion's sake I will not keep silent. It means I believe that Israel has an irrevocable inheritance in the land and an irreplaceable position in God's plan. Now, if that's Christian Zionism, and it is, then I'm a Christian Zionist. I am right there with it. I join the Lord in verse 1. And the Lord continues in verse 2, "...the nations will see your righteousness, and all kings your glory, and you will be called," watch this, "...by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will designate. You will also be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. It will no longer be said to you, Forsaken nor to your land will it be any longer said desolate but she will be called my delight is in her and your land will be called married for the lord delights in you and to him your land will be married god's telling israel this this is your future israel by the way this is no covenant here this is just a promise this is not israel if you keep your part i'm going to do th- no god's saying this is the deal here's what's coming i am doing this for you israel And I love that He not only makes all things new, but He renames them. So that the old things are forgotten. Even the old names are forgotten. He renames the land that was forsaken, Azubah in the Hebrew, now becomes Hepzibah, my delight. What was desolate, Shemamah in the Hebrew, is now Beulah, which means married. You know the old hymn? Some of you may recall this. I remember it from growing up. Beulah Land. Oh, Beulah Land. And we would sing, Oh, Beulah Land. And I was like, what is Beulah Land? And then I finally understood. When I was in elementary school, I went to Christian camp and the camp director's wife was named Beulah and I thought it was her land. We're singing for Beulah's land. We called her Godzilla. But that's another story for another time. (laughs) Beulah means married. Why married? Because the king himself is now present in the land. The land is married. The land is wed to the king. And in his presence there, he protects the land. He nurtures the land. He cultivates the land. He sustains it. And by the way, this whole idea of a new name, you know the Lord promises that you're going to have a new name as well. And if you love your name, get over it because you're going to get a better one. One that has never been soiled by life on this earth. One that cannot be connected to previous things that you ever did or perhaps were known for. Revelation 2.17, Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone. What's the hidden manna? What's the white stone? Listen to the Revelation study and you can find out. And a new name will be written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Huh? A secret name that's known only to you and to Jesus. A name that when He calls it, you'll hear it and go, He's talking about me. (laughs) Just you and Jesus will know this name. The new name reflects the newly transformed life. Everything's new. When the old name goes away, as I said, the old reputation goes with it. In other words, people will no longer say, Hey, aren't you the guy who... Weren't you the lady who No, it wasn't me. I was that was some you know that was a Rick, but I'm not Rick. (laughs) I'm not Beulah either, but I'm not Rick. And as if that wasn't enough. God reveals that even more new names will reflect this completely transformed reality, transformed lives and a transformed reality in the kingdom. Revelation three twelve Jesus says of the one who overcomes I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name wow and I'm going to write it on you that's the best idea for a tattoo I have ever heard and I will wait for that one and encourage you to do the same because you know what happens with tattoos You get a tattoo on your knee, give it 30 or 40 years, it'll be on your calf. Get a tattoo on your lower back and just think about where that's going to end up. It's just not good. Verse 5. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Did you just hear that? What he just said? Two parallel realities. Two parallel realities. Converge in verse 5 with divine prophetic precision. Israel, your God, your husband is going to rejoice over you just as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride. Well, who's that? That's Jesus in the church. Israel, your marriage, your restored marriage will be wonderful. And you will be so excited just as the bridegroom rejoicing over the bride, that is the church rejoicing. Being rejoiced over by Jesus. So Israel, you will be rejoiced over by the Lord. You see how the parallel prophecies. Two plans of God that are both plans of God, both being fulfilled. God's plan for the church with Jesus as our groom and God's plan for Israel, his wife, who has been a whoring, but now has come back to him and is restored. Two marriages. Both side by side in this picture. It's marvelous. Two marriages. Both loved, both married, Israel and the church, both intimately joined to God. Of course, Ephesians 5.31, Paul says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reverence of Christ and the church. And we know this. The church is the bride of Christ. Clearly described that way in Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8. Revelation 21, verse 2. And we see how the church is the bride joins the Spirit of the Lord in proclaiming the gospel of His grace. Revelation 22, verse 17 tells us the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. So understand this. God is not bound to an either-or plan. It is both Israel and the church that are precious to God. And there are too many in the church who say, no, no, it's just the church. There are those of Israel who say, no, no, it's just Israel. They're both wrong. Because it's Israel and the church and God has a plan that is working out for both. Verse 6, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen all day and all night. They will never keep silent. You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves. And give Him no rest until He establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Originally, the watchmen on the walls were the prophets. Prophets. God appointed, called out these men, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, these different guys, Daniel, to be watchmen on the walls, to call out and to intercede for and to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, to pray for the people of Jerusalem. Who might the watchman be today? And I believe it's the church. And I believe that we are called to be watchmen on the walls for Israel. We have that responsibility. The responsibility falls to anyone who loves the Lord, who loves the Lord's land, and who loves the Lord's people. And if that's you, you have been called to be a watchman on the wall for the people of Israel. It's a high and noble calling for the church of Jesus Christ. Spurgeon said this, a restless Savior calls upon His people to be restless and to make the Lord Himself restless, to give Him no rest till His chosen city is in full splendor. Watchmen on the Walls, verse 8. The Lord has sworn by His right hand and by His strong arm, I will never again give your grain as food for your enemies, nor will foreigners drink your new wine for which you have labored but those who garner it will eat it and praise the Lord and those who gather it will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary the sanctuary, the temple we're going to have a picnic in the temple courts is what God's telling the people of Israel your new grain, your food your drink, your new wine and by the way, new wine is not fermented that's why it's called new wine This is the best Welch's you've ever had. In fact, Welch's can't even make this because they still make it from concentrate. Therefore, not on the diet we're going on in my home. (laughs) I digress. He says, we're going to have a picnic in the temple courts. I invite you to bring the best of your harvest. And God says, but I want you to bring it to the court. I want you to bring it to the sanctuary. We're going to share it there together. Has God ever done that before? He has. Keep your finger there and go back to Deuteronomy chapter 14. Deuteronomy 14, the last book of the Torah. Beginning in verse 22, let me just read this, you guys follow along. You shall surely tithe... All the produce from what you sow, which comes out of the field every year. Tithe. The tithe is 10%. God says 10% of everything in your fields. The first, the best, by the way, because the tithe is not just 10%. It's the first 10%. Take the first 10% out of your land that you sow, everything that comes out of it. You shall, verse 23, eat in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where He chooses to establish His name. That's Jerusalem. Jerusalem. The tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock, so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. A couple things are amazing here. God says, I want you to tithe. I want your first 10%. But you get to eat it. There's a different perspective for tithing at church. When you drop the money in the box, when you tithe your first 10% to the Lord, guess what? You are blessing yourself. And we don't often think of it that way. Well, i got to give up this. I'll keep this other part. i give this to the Lord. It's my sacrifice. No, it's your blessing. It is absolutely, positively, always a blessing to give your first 10% to the Lord. I'm not talking legalistically. I'm not saying the Lord prescribes it for the church. Actually, it's, that's really, it's really more of a starting place. You can give a whole lot more than that if you'd like to. But understand that when you do that, it's for your own blessing. The Lord says, tithe. And I can just hear the people of Israel grumbling. What? We've got to take the first 10% of what we grow? And God says, bring it to the temple. Oh, we've got to bring it to the temple. And you get to eat it there. Oh, okay. (laughs) That sounds pretty good. Verse 24, he says, If the distance is so great for you that you're not able to bring the tithe, since the place where the Lord your God chooses to set his name is too far away from you when the Lord your God blesses you, then you shall exchange it for money. And bind the money in your hand. By the way, that was not to happen in the temple courts. Money exchange. It was to happen wherever you live. Sell that produce. Sell the stuff. Take all that money. Come to Jerusalem. Buy it up again. Bring that to the temple court. And have a picnic. Have a party with the Lord there at the courts. You may spend the money. Look at this. Talk about a generous God. Verse 26. I want you to tithe to me, but you may spend the money for whatever your heart desires. For oxen, sheep, or wine, or strong drink. We'll do a study on that some other day. Or whatever your heart desires. And there you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God. And rejoice you and your household. And don't neglect the Levite who's in your town, for he has no portion or inheritance among you. And at the end of every third year, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in that year. And you shall deposit it in your town. The Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among you, the alien, the orphan, the widow who are in your town, shall come and eat and be satisfied, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. This is just an This is how God thinks. Remember, we talked about his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts. His thoughts are: I want you to give this to me so that you can have it. I want you to trust me with what I've given you so I can give you more. And he has it all to give. And he needs nothing. He doesn't need your dollar or your hundred bucks or your check in the tide box. That's not for him. It's for you. And it's for the Levite. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know why I did that. It's for the Levite, it's for the orphan, it's for the widow, it's for those within the body who may not have as much as you have, and so it's shared together. There is something communal about this that's beautiful. But can you imagine Israel coming into the courts of the temple, bringing this? It's called the Festal Offering because it was a festival of joy. They we share this time together. You can see people all camped out with their baskets and their grain and their new wine and their strong drink. And they're just having a great time together. And God says, here's the point. I want you before me. Why? Because I want you to learn to fear me. In other words, recognize that everything that you have is from me. And I also want you to be in fellowship with me. Let's do this together, God says. And so there's a great principle there in tithing for us that I think we ought to chew on a bit and understand and know that God doesn't want anyone to miss out on the joyful feast. Verse 10, so he calls out to his people and he says, go through. Go through the gates. Clear the way for my people. Build up. Build up the highway. Remove the stones. Lift up a standard over the peoples. Now these gates here are probably not the gates of Jerusalem. It's probably talking about city gates around the world that have held His people back from coming to the land. This verse is a call to release and a call to assistance. Open the gates and let my people come home and help them along the way the Lord calls out. Verse 11, Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, Lo, your salvation comes. Be- behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. And suddenly God personifies salvation. Your salvation comes and His reward is with Him. Bible students, what's the Hebrew word for salvation? Yeshua. Yeshua. Behold, your Yeshua comes. Jesus comes and His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him and Jesus says this very thing. speaks these same words. Behold, Revelation 22.12, I am coming quickly and My reward is with Me. Whose reward? Salvation's reward. Whose salvation? Jesus' is. To render to every man according to what He has done. Jesus speaks these words Himself. Verse 12, And they will call them the holy people the redeemed of the Lord, and you, Israel, you will be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. What a promise. A guarantee to Israel. And in light of Isaiah 61 and 62, which not enough Christians have heard in their lives, I ask this question again, what should be our response to Israel? What should be our response when we see Israel in the news? I will not keep silent for Zion's sake. I will not keep silent. I've, I've told the story before. We had just gotten back from Israel. This is two trips ago. Landed in Seattle. Cheryl and I were walking around Seattle, trying to clear my head after the after the trip and the flight and all that. And, and as we walked down the street, we saw a whole group of people standing on street corners with big yellow signs calling Israel an apartheid state and I kept hearing in my head for Zion's sake I will not keep silent but I didn't want to deal with it and so we passed right on by these ladies with these signs could have been my grandma I mean just sweet little you know gray haired ladies holding up these Israel's an apartheid state sign I'm like and as we're walking by Cheryl said don't you want to say something I'm hearing for Zion's sake I will not keep silent for Zion's sake and so I turned around and I went up to this lady and I said have you ever been there? Well, no, but I wouldn't go there. Not while Israel's in charge of the land. Off she went, you know, just in this this whole thing. And I said, well, I've, I've been there, and it's not what you think. It's not what is being told to you here. It is not the... And you all know this, if you've been here much, that the uh, when you travel in the um, West Bank, so-called, the Palestinian territories, you see million-dollar houses. This in Refugee camps. With million dollar houses and vast amounts of acreage. And Palestinians who will tell you right now, they don't really want their own state because the blessings that they get from being under the control of Israel are far greater than they know they would get if it was truly a Palestinian state. It's a big political thing. Why are you going there, Rick? I want to share something with you as we close here. You can close your Bibles and just listen for a minute. There's a recent Bridges for Peace Israel teaching letter that came out, and I was reading it with interest, as it talks about a whole new theology that is being propagated in the Middle East, propagated specifically in the Palestinian territories and therein in Israel proper. And this whole new theology is in reality just a retrofit of the old heresy of replacement theology. And yes, I did just call it a heresy. Because replacement theology would cast out the very people that God says, I am going to do this for. This new theology began to be developed in 1970, thereabouts early 1970s, by a man named Naim Atik. Naim Atik, who was an Anglican priest, born in Nazareth, of all places, grew up in Israel, and began to develop this... Uh, This new theology, he basically reworked Catholic liberation theology into an opposition movement to Israel's control over the land. This new theology is today called Palestinian Fulfillment Theology or Christian Palestinianism. It's just replacement theology set there in the land. Let me give you a few lowlights. Number one. It looks at the 1948 emergence of the modern Jewish state, not as a miracle, but as a catastrophe. Palestinian fulfillment theology. We'll get there, but Isaiah 66, verse 7 says, Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, think Holocaust... She also brought forth her sons. The Holocaust was the birth pangs of the delivery of the Jewish state. 1948, greatest single prophecy or prophetic fulfillment in the last century, or the, yeah, the last century. God says, "Shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery?" says the Lord. Or shall I give delivery? Or shall I, who gives delivery, shut the womb? says your God. But Palestinian fulfillment theology says, "No, that was not prophetic fulfillment." Instead, it's a catastrophe on the land. Christian Palestinianism is the opposite of Christian Zionism. So this so-called new theology that that is is rising up counters the idea that Christians should stand up and pray for the peace of Jerusalem and, and, and pray for the Jewish people. And for Zion's sake, not stay silent. This goes to the exact opposite. Israel is the aggressor. Israel is the illegitimate occupier of the land today. And you hear it all the time in the, in the drive-by media. Jesus in Palestinian fulfillment theology is recast as a social liberator rather than a spiritual liberator. Jesus who came to set the captive free. What did He come to set us free from? Death and sin. But in Palestinian fulfillment theology, He came to set the Palestinians free because Jesus Himself is a Palestinian. Even though it's not not an actual people. Do you know that? And we've talked about that here, right? Palestinian means Palestina it's, it's from the Roman name Palestina which means Philistine land which is what Rome renamed the land in 135 AD that's where it comes from so Jesus is a Palestinian who suffered under military occupation and therefore unders the current suffering of the Palestinians under the military occupation of Israel this is Palestinian fulfillment theology it teaches that the church is Israel of the Bible that we are not grafted into the rich root of the olive tree, which Paul says we are in Romans 11, but set that aside. No, we supplant the olive tree. We are the olive tree. We are collective Israel, and the Jewish people, they don't count. They're out. Palestinian fulfillment theology teaches that the Bible is not a Jewish book. <laughs> What did we just spend the last hour reading, if not Hebrew prophecy? But Palestinian fulfillment theology looks back and says, no, this is solely a Christian document, and the New Testament supersedes the Old Testament and cancels it out. Sounds an awful lot like the Book of Mormon or the Koran. You see, in the Book of Mormon and the Quran, whenever a later revelation uh, contradicts an earlier revelation, you always go with the more recent one. Mormonism even has a term for that. It's, it's uh, I forget what the term is. It's, it's basically ongoing revelation, that, that a new revelation can come, and even if it contradicts their own scriptures, the new revelation is what you follow. And so, Palestinian fulfillment theology says, well, the New Testament completely blindsides and wipes out the Old Testament and takes its place. And Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law, I came to fulfill it. He completes it. He brings it all to bear. It is all God's Word from Genesis 1.1 to Revelation 22. It is all God's Word. No greater or lesser, it's all His Word. By the way, Israel is named more than 70 times in the New Testament and it refers exclusively and unequivocally to the Jewish people every single time it's named in the New Testament. Israel, the Jewish people. But here's the thing that should probably concern us the most. A lot of popular evangelical leaders are getting on board with Palestinian fulfillment theology. Guys who I've mentioned before, Tony Campolo is one. Lynn Heibels. Gary Burge, John Piper. And here are three quotes for you. Stephen Sizer, who wrote a book, Christian Zionism, The Roadmap to Armageddon, called Christian Zionism, quote, a totally unbiblical menace and one of the most dangerous and heretical movements in the world. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. That's what the Word says. Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible answer man, he said Christian Zionist beliefs and behaviors are the antithesis of biblical Christianity. Brian McLaren, who I don't subscribe much to anyway, the the, uh, leader of the emergent church movement, but he calls Christian Zionism terrible, deadly, and distorted. That is just, just doing what the Bible says. Just praying for the peace of Jerusalem. And again, Naim Atik, who is the father of this movement, he responded to what we just studied tonight. Isaiah 61 and 62. His response is, and I quote, This exclusive text is unacceptable today. It must be de-Zionized. Now, I'm not making this stuff up. But the truth is that this whole idea of replacement theology and casting out Israel... An old, old heresy, but it's gaining new traction and it's gaining it in the church today. And there's one reason, the number one reason for the surge and the spread of this antagonistic position toward Israel. Do you know what it is? People don't know their Bibles. People are not read in the Word of God. If we read the Word of God, we know what it says. As we just did. You read through Isaiah 61 and 62, you cannot accept the bogusness of this this idea that is being propagated today. God says, God says, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. So how about you? And you may say, yeah, but again, I sit in this barn here on North the Island. I mean, really, what, what can I do? I'll tell you what you can do. Number one, you can know your Bible. Number two, you can be discerning with all other teachings and all other biblical literature. Be discerning. Find out. Don't just take someone's writing at face value because, ooh, it sounds good. Find out what they believe. Find out what they teach. Some of these names that I mentioned, I have some of their books on my shelves. Find out what they really think. Know your Bible. Be discerning. Speak the truth in love. So whatever you do, if you ever have a conversation, as I did on that street corner in Seattle, if you ever have a conversation with someone who is wholeheartedly anti-Israel, don't argue. Don't fight. Don't be mean-spirited. Speak the truth, but do it lovingly. Speak it with compassion and understanding. And finally... Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Let's do that right now, Father. We read the prophecies of Isaiah. We see what what we have been told here. We hear this, and Lord, we know that you fulfill every single thing that you speak. We know all of this will come to pass because you said it would. We have the example of Jesus first coming to prove to us how literal will be his second coming. And Lord, first and foremost, we just declare ourselves to be Father on your side. We declare ourselves, I declare myself to be for your people Israel. Praying for them. Praying, Father, first and foremost, that every Jew on the planet would come to faith in Jesus Christ now. Before the tribulation. Before the day of the vengeance of our God. We pray that, Lord. We pray for the Messianic Church to grow and spread there in Israel. We pray for protection of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are Jewish people. But we pray also, Father, for the lost of Israel as much as we pray for the lost of this world, that they would come to a saving knowledge in their own Mashiach, who is Jesus. We pray, Father, that all of the the evil and the wickedness that is building up on the borders of Israel be squelched and and squashed. We pray, Father, for Your power and Your strength to protect that land and Your people, to protect it against division, to protect it, Father, against all of the lies that are spoken in the media and across the airwaves today. Father, we, we do not believe Israel are occupiers. We believe that they are simply a people who You are drawing back to the land, just as You said You would. And I pray, Father, that we would in our lives continue to speak out for Your people even as we continue to speak the truth of the Gospel of Jesus. Lord, we are not called to be a quiet people. We're called to speak out, to shout the Gospel from the rooftops and to declare the truth about Zion. And may we be found doing so. May we be found faithful, Father, when You come